John, the story of baseball, at least in New York, is Anthony Volpe making the Yankees uh, as their starting shortstop, the job he always dreamed of. And we have the person who drafted him, Damon Oppenheimer. Yeah, I think it's great to get uh, Damon on. Drafted Aaron Judge. He drafted Volpe. Two guys in, late in the first round. So those are two good, great, great draft choices. Uh, uh, Judge is already an all-time great with the AL home run record. And Volpe uh, is the story in New York. I would say Senga might be the second story. But Volpe is the story right now in New York. And uh I've never heard the story about Mike Trout and how the Yankees were going to draft him from Damon, but we all know this story, and it should be very interesting to ask him about that as well. Well, we'll ask him about all those stories, and John and I will pick our top three stories each from the first week in baseball. Then we'll play Hidden Error at the end if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. John, this is a perfect road trip for you. You've lived in Milwaukee. You've lived in Miami. This is where the Mets have opened uh, their season, first floor in Miami. As we're talking, uh, it's before game two of the season against the Brewers. So you've seen every regular season inning so far. There's been some good. There's been some concern. Where are you on the Mets right now? Uh, yeah, if you asked me yesterday, I would have been all positive. Senga was fabulous, as we recall, in Miami. And yesterday they had a brutal, as our headline, the Post called it brutal, a pun <laughs> with the Brewers. I liked it. Uh, game 10 nothing loss to Milwaukee. Can't take too much out of one game. But right now, uh, I would say mixed. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about certain areas with the Mets. Uh, the bullpen could be one. I think Raleigh was a great, great uh, acquisition. We'll still see on the closer. Obviously, Robertson has looked good. Um, you know, I think Adovino's looked okay, but uh, still concerned there. And then Carrasco uh, did not look great yesterday. And it wasn't just that he two pitch clock violations. I think it hurried him along. And you've got to be in good shape to be, keep throwing in under 15 seconds per pitch. And he certainly seemed to tire there in the fifth inning. I know he had a lot of pitches, but it's only the fifth inning and he walked two batters. So concern there, obviously, Verlander getting checked out. That's a concern. So in third base, uh, we're going to be hearing about that a lot. Escobar is a peak and valley guy right now going through a big valley. Does not look good at all. And I know the fans are going to be saying, go get Beatty. Not yet. That's not happening yet. Uh, Escobar's got more rope than this. And uh, they were going to keep going with him. Yeah, you know, John, they could solve some stuff internally uh, when it comes to offense. Uh, if this is their problem as it goes along, you know, they could bring in Beatty. They could bring in Alvarez, even if it's just, you know, they're obviously they don't want to slow down Alvarez's prop, uh, progress as a catcher. But they're not throwing away a $350 million plus payroll on, uh, you know, like development. If they've got to get his bat here, they will. The, uh, the area of concern is pitching depth. And quality pitching depth, both in the bullpen and uh, in the rotation. And they've had both some injury and poor performance early on. And I wonder about that over the long haul. 
John, we've had about a week of action here as we're speaking. Uh, unfortunately, this has turned into 162 one-game seasons. I remember when we used to have a lot more patience than this. But uh, I, I just wondered in broad strokes, we go 3-2-1, you first. Like, What, what stood out uh, in this barely first week of the season? I'm going to put him at three, and that's Shohei Otani. I don't think he's three on any list really out there, but I, he's number three on my list. Uh, just that first appearance with uh, six innings, calling his own pitches, 10 strikeouts. I know it's against the A's, but, I mean, probably a threat to win the Cy Young as well as the MVP. Of course, Judge is going to give him a run, run for his money of the MVP, but, I mean, he's going to be a story all year with that $500 million or more staring him in the face. And, you know, he's not a guy about money. I mean, we're talking about the money all the time. He's a guy about playing, and he did that in the WBC. Took a bit of a risk there, and, uh, you know, i got to admire this guy, and he's off to a very good start. Yeah, you know, uh, absolutely. You know who's not off to a good start caught my attention is the Phillies are 0-4, and it isn't just their 0-4. They, they, they got brutalized these first four games, and I think – John, I think we were in the same boat. We talked about it in spring training. I think we thought this was a very talented team that could withstand the loss of Harper for a while. And, you know, and when he comes back, that will be a big boost. And then they lost Hoskins. But like Schwarber has gotten off terrible. Uh, we've got to remember that a lot of these pitchers pitched to, you know, game six of the World Series last year, put a lot of extra innings on it. I would assume they're going to write themselves. I mean, people were like the Padres started 0-2 and then they won three in a row. So like, you know, in a week, uh, the, the Phillies could be six and four or something like that. And it's all right. But the chalk was the six teams who made the playoffs in the National League last year were going to make it this year. They kind of like were obvious. And you're looking for who might be vulnerable in that. And at least this first week has made you go, hmm, those are big losses, Harper and Hoskins. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on the Phillies. They're one of my next two picks. So I, I'm not going to keep people – I'm going to keep people in suspense about what my comments are. But now they know that uh, Phillies are one of my top three stories as well. But uh, What's number two for you, John? Two, I've got the Yankees looking good with the power. I mean, obviously, they got a lot of injury questions. Johnny Brito did a good job. I don't think they're going to need much pitching the way they're hitting. You know, Rodon will be back. Cortez looked good. Cole looked great. And boy, can they hit, uh, you know, obviously judge uh, with the home runs already. And you've got Stanton, 485 feet. Glaber's looking great. Uh, you know, we could see why they won 99 games and why they were on pace for, what, 120 wins early last year. Uh, they got a ton of talent and they're showing it. Yeah, you know, I think Volpe's energy, besides the fact that he looks like a yeah. good player, I think it's given them a little boost coming right out of spring training. On the subject of young players, my number two is how good um, Vargas and Outman have looked for the Dodgers right out of the box. The Dodgers are trying to thread that needle where they took their payroll down a little bit. They're still well over $200 million. But at, at a time where the Padres built it up and they're trying to turn over to their next good team and Outman and Vargas – and pitchers like Pepiot and Grove and Miller, et cetera. Like if they're able to do this on the run and then be in position to make a run at your number three guy, Otani in the offseason, or there's still a lot of rumors that Roki Sasaki, the great young uh, Japanese pitcher there, it was supposed to not come until after 2024. There's some rumors out. It might be after 2023, after this season, I think they'd be in play for that. So I think the Dodgers are fascinating. Can they turn over their team? Uh, and stay elite. I think what they've made the playoffs, is it the last 10 years or the last 11? And they've made the, the first place in all but one of those years. Can they still hold off the Padres? And if they do, when exactly are the Padres going to win the division? 
Well, I had the Padres winning the division, so we'll see about that. I'm not giving up on that one. I did have Vargas for the uh, Rookie of the Year, although when I was out there, he was not allowed to swing. Uh, but I was hearing nice things about him. Well, John, so. you know what's interesting is that he wasn't allowed to swing in spring training. That might have worked to his advantage. He's got like eight walks already. Yeah, maybe he it, worked on his eye while he was standing there maybe, not swinging with the injured finger. Maybe everyone's going to do that. I mean, he's just <laughs> tracking the ball. You think that someone could do that in the backfield? I'm like, what am I watching here? A guy standing there. I, I, I almost, except that I'd be afraid of the ball. I can almost do that. But I mean, Vargas, Outman, I mean, they just draft and develop Great. amazingly yeah. well, uh, particularly for a team that drifts very, very low, as the Yankees do. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's any suspense anymore. Well, my number one is it's the Phillies because I have a lot of anxiety about this pick. I had them winning the division. Not getting to the World Series again, but winning the division, they should be a very good team. And it's not a good sign. I know it's only a few four games, but, you know, they had uh, Nola was not that good. Wheeler was not that good. Taiwan Walker was not that good. I think Ranger Suarez, we still have a little bit of a an issue potentially with him. Obviously, Painter uh, is on the I.L., so I, I do think Harper will be back maybe even late May and surprise folks and their hitting should be the best in the league, but uh, they're a big concern. You're right for putting them on the list. And I am very, very worried about them after four games. Yeah. Uh, so for my number one, John, I'm it's the rules. Uh, like it's hard to ignore how quick yeah. the game's playing, but what's really moving fast is there's been 84 stolen bases and more important in a hundred tries and I always, it's not a joke, John might laugh, yeah. I always called John to help me with math. John is really good at math, and I'm not. But 84 out of 100, I could figure. That's 84%. <laughs> that would be a by far a record success uh, rate. We're up uh, significantly from this time last year. We're about where things were in the say, early 2000s for steals per game. Uh, the question is, will it get to like the 80s? when teams were averaging like one, one and a half a game, or are teams going to figure out how to shut everything down? You know, back picks by catchers, more pitch outs, more athletic pitchers holding. So I'm doing it. What I find fascinating within this, the game's moving faster, the player's moving faster, is still the three true outcomes are determining games. Walks are up, strikeouts are up, homers are kind of like at their near historic highs. And if you don't hit home runs, you don't score runs with all the stolen bases. Runs per game are static. So it's a fascinating yeah. moment where guys are moving around the bases more, but you still have to be able to strike guys out and hit homers. And I don't know how we unplug that. Yeah, no, I do like the more steals. I'm not sure if it's the bigger bases. They're not that much bigger, but maybe it's psychological. And also the only two disengagements by the pitcher that may have an effect as well. Uh, the rules have been fantastic. We love them here at the New York Post, which really helps us on the deadline so that your stories will be better. I mention that every week because that's the thing I'm most excited about. But the rules are great. My one concern, which I've said this many times, and, the, and Rob Manfred, when he was on, he said basically they, they can still think about what might need to be done even in season is the fact that, you know, once we get to a huge game and there is anticipation about throwing the ball and hitting the ball and the cat and mouse game of the pitcher and the hitter, uh, you know, is it still going to be, you got to run, you got to pitch it quickly and you got to hit it quickly. Um, you know, when you get to a playoff game, you might want to see that a little bit, of, have that a little bit of that anticipation, that little bit of that time. And you might want to give guys a little more room and, uh, you know, you certainly don't want a pitch clock. You certainly don't want a pitch clock violation 
to end a playoff game. You know, so that's, well, why that's not? my concern. Why, why, like, we talked about this with Rob. He was our guest last yeah. week, the commissioner. Like, if I were pushing back on that, John, I'd say, like, you know, if Patrick Mahomes doesn't get a playoff in 40 seconds in the Super Bowl, like, people don't blame the the the, the rules. They blame Patrick Mahomes. If, you know, LeBron James doesn't get a shot off in 24 seconds in an NBA Finals, we don't blame the rules. We blame LeBron. Okay. And I know there's historic precedent for – like playing at a different pace here, but they'll have a whole season and we were moving yeah, too we're... slow. And I think if we start making like, oh, let's just make it the playoffs or different rules. I, I don't know. Like I do think by May 1st, this isn't going to be that much of an issue. I hope not. We did have a strikeout on a pitch clock violation. Then we'll have a strikeout in the World Series, John. Well, in like, the World Series is okay, but what if it ends the World Series? You know, then it ends the World I... Series. What if a penalty ends anything in any sport? All right. Yeah. Well, I, I I get your point, Joel, but I mean, you're not going to like it when the World Series ends and the umpire, the home plate umpire is pointing to his watch and says, we're done here. That, that's not going to be the same as a penalty in football or something like that. I hope and pray that doesn't happen. I doubt it will happen. I think guys will self-correct by then. Maybe there'll be some discretion and the umpire won't do that. I hope. But, you know, we worry about everything here. Yeah, well, we have months and months to worry. But, John, you mentioned how low the Yankees traditionally draft. Uh, I mentioned Anthony Bolte's energy. And we thought the right person to talk to would be the scouting director of the New York Yankees, Damon Oppenheimer, who drafted not only Anthony Volpe, Aaron Judge. We'll talk about both of them and more if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayden. We're back on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman and our guest this week, a special guest, someone John and I have known a long time, Damon Oppenheimer, who's been with the New York Yankees since 1993. He's been the scouting director since 2005. And there's always a lot of reasons to talk to Damon. But obviously this season, especially in this town in New York, uh, Anthony Volpe made the team as the starting shortstop. Somehow he's overshadowed a guy who won the AL MVP and hit 62 homers last year. Another guy you drafted, uh, Damon. Aaron Judge. And um, I'm wondering, can you just a little bit give us an idea of when does a player like Volpe come onto your radar screen? He played for the U.S. under 13, U.S. 15, U.S. 18. I mean, is it as early as 13? Where, where along the line does he become of interest to the New York Yankees? Yeah, it's a great question. Is he is he's a guy that it just happened to be that we had a scout in Matt Hyde that was out seeing some underclass stuff. And, and I think he, the first time he saw Anthony was, he was about 14 years old. Um, noticed that he was a, a good player. And, you know, in, in our world, that's, that's a little, probably a little too young to really do much in terms of major evaluations, but it, it put it, it put his name on, uh, on our radar. And then it really took off when he was, uh, you know, about in his junior year at Del Barton and, playing summer ball and the team USA things and, and just the accolades that he was getting from that, that that's kind of when it really takes off. And then you, then you really bear down and, and evaluate the tools and everything else. You know, Volpe, I think was the 30th pick of the 2019 draft. How did you decide on Volpe at 30? You guys always draft low, so it's not easy to do that. You did get judged low in the draft as well. Uh, I think that was 2000. 13, maybe it was a long time early, but quite a while, 2013. So in the 2019, uh, 30th pick was Volpe. How did you decide on Volpe? And I saw him in spring training. He told me it was a super, 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 three super 
difficult decision. Uh, the Yankees versus Vanderbilt, a lot of sleepless nights, and he obviously finally settled on the Yankees signing for over $2 million bonus. Uh, how did you convince him? Well, you know, what? When, when we were able to get to, to go scout Anthony, and we were at the NHSI tournament in Cary, and uh, we were there to see Jack Leiter and Anthony. I mean, and it was a, and it's a great tournament that they bring a ton of kids into. And so we were sitting there watching and um, watching Leiter just – he was dominating. And, and Anthony's playing a great shortstop, and he hits a ball uh, – uh, out of the park and left field in a real park. And, and you're just like, well, that part of the game's now coming along too. So, you know, it was funny because I go back to the hotel room and, and my national cross checker, uh, Brian Barber, who's now the scouting director of the Phillies, he, he calls me up and he's like, he goes, you know, we've been talking about this guy for a long time, but not in the context of the first round. He goes, he's our guy. If he gets to us, he's a first rounder. And I was like, I was just having the same thought. I was writing this report. And I'm going, all his tools have improved and he's just become a great player. And so anyway, fast forward to getting closer to the, to the draft and we're, it's a guy that we're obviously locked in on and we think could be a perfect fit for us, but the Vanderbilt thing's real. And he's been telling us that and, other, and all of baseball that, hey, I'm probably going to school. It's 95%, maybe even more. And so, uh, you know, we, we end up going, okay, Jim Hendry, who works for us and has, you know, been a former general manager, you guys know. And so um, he says, hey, I've got a friend who knows the Volpes, and maybe I can, you know, go have dinner with them. So I said, anything. Yeah. So they schedule a dinner, they go to a place, and Jim just shoots straight with the Volpes and the kid and just says, look, you go to college, you go to Vanderbilt, you're probably going to come out in three years as a top five pick in the draft. We think you're that good. I think you compare to Bregman, guys like that. So, and, and I think it stunned him that he was that honest about and didn't try to just, you know, uh, say bad things about college baseball or do any of that. He just, said, here's what, here's the way we see it. Here's what we think. Now, if you want to be a Yankee, this is your chance because you're not going to get that opportunity. If you go to Vanderbilt and you play the way we think you are. So it was a long, it was, I'm sure he did have long, long nights and he got a lot of pressure to, to, you know, from the Vanderbilt people. But I think in the long run, he just wanted to be a Yankee and he saw that this was his chance. Damon, there was a sense, uh, you know, since then that maybe he, said the only teams he'd consider not going to Vanderbilt for were you and the Dodgers. Uh, do you believe that? And on the day of the draft, when you actually take him, do you know he's not going to Vanderbilt, that this isn't like the Garrett Cole uh, situation you people could forget, right? You drafted Garrett Cole and he went to UCLA. When you draft him, do you believe he is going to sign with us? Yes. I mean, th th we had – we had a lot more contact. We had a lot more assurances. Now it's still not a hundred percent because you just never know if somebody gets in somebody else's ear again and, and it, they change their mind, but we, we sure had a, a much better feel that this, this was going to be a, a done deal and that we'd get him signed based off of what the relationship Jim built with the, with the family and the agent. So it was, it was, it was working in our favor. Do you think it was just you were the Dodgers, Damon? that he would say yes to? I, I didn't really know it was. I didn't really know that it would be the Dodgers. Um, but 
I mean, that, that, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, a, a little bit of sense, but I do think that, I do think that it was a, a, a very few teams that were, were really involved that thought they'd get it done. You know, that 2019 draft was a pretty good one. Looking at it right now, we've got some guys in the major leagues already uh, contributing. Adley Rutschman, number one pick. You had Bobby Wood Jr., number two pick. Corbin Carroll was in that draft. Where did Volby – I mean, you pick low. You you always pick very low. You don't get those – you wouldn't get Adley Rutschman or Bobby Wood Jr., who were unbelievable players as amateurs. Where did Volpe stack up on your draft board? If you had the first pick or the third pick, or the fourth, where would he have been picked as early as possible for you? And and what did you think? I mean, he is 21 now starting. Are, are you a little – I mean, you, you loved him, but are you a little surprised he got to this point this quickly? Well, we had him up on our board pretty good. I can't exactly remember the number, but he was in a top tier, let's put it that way, of, of, of our guys. So um, had we been picking early in that draft, he would have still been a target guy for us, so, depending on who else fell. But, it was, yeah, we had him stuffed up there pretty good. Um, in terms of how well he's done, uh, that's, you know, realistically, John, this is all on him. He's done everything that you could ask a guy to do. I mean, you think about it. He signed the first year he signs, he goes to Pulaski and he gets, and he gets sick in Pulaski and he has, it might've been mono. I can't remember what it exactly was, but it cut his season short. It cut his performance down. It cut his, his strength down. Um, then the next year's COVID. And this is when he really took it, took the bull by the horns. He went, we didn't have any minor league stuff going on. We didn't have anything. The kids weren't down in Tampa. They weren't doing anything. He was back up in New Jersey. He went like every day up to Westchester County and, and he, and he hit with Jason Lefkowitz who had this hitting facility that was basically in an art gallery. It's crazy. It's it, the pictures of it. The pic, the pictures of it are crazy. You walk through an art gallery upstairs and there's sawdust on the floor from the guys kept making frames and this guy's got this cage and jason did a great job teaching anthony to be his own best hitting coach is what he did he's got a strength of that he went to the gym every day he took it upon himself and he just he dominated his off season or not his off season his covid season by taking care of things himself and making himself better and then the next year he takes off so it was, it was really, really impressive what he did on his own to become the player he's been. You know, Damon, what you're talking about there are intangibles, right? Character stuff, uh, self-motivation, et cetera. And it's probably become obvious to Yankee fans within even the first, you know, spring training in the first week of the season that this kid seems to be made of good stock. I wonder, as a scouting director, if you could use Volpe as the example, you're trying to find guys who could play in New York. Uh, it's probably a little tougher than even in other places. What are you doing uh, homework-wise uh, on, on kids, and especially Volpe, to know, hey, yeah, we think that he's not just a special talent. We think he has that other thing also that helps somebody play and play well in New York. Yeah, it's really – it is difficult to try to figure out New York. I can tell you one thing is that the kids that come up through our system that spend all, spend the time in our minor leagues and come up as – developed players, whether it's international guys or drafted guys, I, I think that they they learn what it takes to be a Yankee and they learn a little bit about the demands of, of what's going to happen when they get to New York. Um, so I think that that's, that's a benefit. Now, with him, I think that it was a lot of 
things went into it. He comes from great parents who didn't enable him, uh, and they made him work, but they also afforded him the opportunities to do things. But he was that 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 home support system we found to be really huge. So that part about it's big. He was always a winner. Everywhere you looked around, this guy was on a team that was winning, and he was a major part of it. He was hitting in the top part of the order. He was driving in runs. He was doing, you know, you wanted the ball hit to him, and then you watched him, and he just never took a play off. He never takes a pitch off. I mean, he's engaged all the time. So, you know, that that part about it, and then just, uh, you know, you, you do your work as a scout by not just – not just being on the other side of the fence where you're just watching what they do on the field. You're watching, you, you, you get down in, in the dugouts with them with Matt Hyde, who was our area scout who ran the area code team and was part of that. These guys, they were on the field with them and saw how they, how they come back into the dugout, say how they interact with their teammates. Um, and that's what he was able to see with Anthony. And he did a great job. Uh, of being around Anthony from area code underclass to the area code games to all the Kelly Rodman games that we had that we were able to be on the field. And I think that's another part of it. And then just getting with the, you know, you're able to get with coaches that have had the, that, that have been with these guys, um, whether it's the high school coach or the travel ball coach or USA coach. And I think that's where you gather, you put the whole thing together. You know, I spoke to him in spring training uh, several times. He's he's about the nicest kid, the most polite kid you can ever imagine. Judge, also a very, very nice, pleasant person. I, I know you evaluate everything when you're a scout. Did, did you Do you evaluate that? Do you care? I mean, if someone's got incredible tools and is just a jerk, do you eliminate? Have, have you had cases like that where you just eliminate them completely? Is, is that part of the evaluation or is it just, okay, that's nice that he's a nice guy and okay, we'll take that too. I, I think that it's I, I don't think that the nice guy part of it is, it, you know, that's that's really like a, a great cherry on top of the whole thing. But they're competitive guys. You know, they're guys that are self-starters. Th those are the ones that, that and th that's what these guys are. They're they're good people. I mean, you know, that that's they don't they don't hold themselves any into some special area. They just, they're going to be like just good people. And I think, you know, you got to look at their parents and say they raised them right. And that, and that's a big deal. And, and I think the self-starter thing, and, you know, you take a guy, these guys all have really good tools. Now with well, the separator is what you guys have just alluded to. It's the makeup, you know, that's, that's the separator. And we've seen guys come through that have had great tools that haven't met their ceiling. You know, let's put it that way. You know, I mean, and we've seen guys that are just, you know, that that have lesser tools that have exceeded their ceiling. But these guys have good tools. You talk and judge and Volpe, they have really good tools, great tools and great makeup. That's a perfect fit. You know, John's alluded to it a couple of times, Damon, that you you don't have the high draft picks. You don't get the opportunity to take the Bryce Harpers of the world. The Yankees generally are a high-level contending team. Oftentimes, they sign free agents uh, and they lose picks. I think in your 18 years, the lowest, uh, the highest pick you've ever had is 16th. Uh, often, you're drafting in the 20s, 30s. One year, you didn't have a first pick until number 51. Uh, do you have a philosophy of that that might have to differ from other scouting directors simply because you won't have? the pick of the crop. And by the time it gets to you, what are you looking for to feel like you can find something special lower in the first round? 
Yeah, it, it, I mean, it is tough. I mean, it, it's tough to, that you're picking down there all the time and you're never really picking at the top, but we've never have. So you, you don't even know what it would feel like. So it's, and nobody cares. They, they just care that you produce, right? So, so in the long run, it's like, it doesn't matter. You don't get any, anybody telling you, well, I feel sorry for you because you don't, you didn't pick up top or you don't have as many picks as some of the other places or your pool money. That's the other part about it is your pool money's less than, so you, you have less opportunity, but um, you know, you, you still, we, we still don't just try to maximize what we can out of a draft and get, you know, we're still trying to get ceiling and then we're still trying to get volume of players. And I think that as the Yankees have, you know, we, we've used a lot of our players to be traded. Um, and, and I think that that, that comes into some of our, some of our evaluations too, is this guy going to have immediate value, a guy that maybe a little bit later in the, in the draft that you take. So, so I think we're still trying to do that. You know, Joel is get the, get the guy with some ceiling at the top and then get volume of guys that you think can be major leaguers down the, throughout the board. Yeah. Take me back to that 2013 draft. It's very interesting to go back and look at it. Now you had three picks in that draft. I think one in the twenties, and you had two picks back-to-back -back around 30, 31, somewhere in that area. Took Judge with one of those two uh, later picks. Eric Jagalow from Notre Dame was your first pick. Uh, and also, Billy McKinney, who's now in the minors, has been a major leaguer with the, with the Yankees and other teams, was picked higher, uh, somewhere higher than Judge. And so was Clint Frazier, who was briefly a Yankee, as we recall. Um, you know, what did you see in Judge and – it does seem to be kind of an inexact science that, you know, he's 30th now or so, and he's an all-time great. Uh, did you see that high ceiling in him at that draft? Did you feel like it was a little bit of a risk, but a high ceiling? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, you, you know, you can go back and it's Judge at 30, it's Trout at, what, 25 or 20, 23, whatever it was. I mean, you know, there's some guys that slide down the board for sure, you know, and, so you go back to, you know, you go back on Shigailo, who we took first in that draft. Okay, and Eric was a good-looking left-handed bat that profiled as a third baseman in Yankee Stadium with power and everything. And he was, and he was really doing well. He, he, after we signed and took him, he was doing well. And then he got hit in the head uh, in a, in a uh, instructional league game, and it just it really messed him up. I mean, it got it, it to where he had. Uh, concussions and now he had eye, vision issues and, and things like that and then he ended up you know after he gets traded I, I think he, got, he was in the Chapman deal with to Cincinnati and he and either before or after he gets uh, diabetes and so he couldn't he just wasn't bouncing back the same way but if you go back and look he was really having a nice progression through the minor leagues so that would have been nice but um we knew in the in the draft that the, the, just the recon we did, we we thought that you could get Jagai. We had to take Jagailo where we took him, or you were going to lose him to probably like Cincinnati right afterwards. And then that there was just so much, there was just so much information that said Judge is probably going to get down to where we pick. And it was like you just didn't you just didn't think it was going to be a situation where you had to take him where where you had Jagailo. So. We rolled the dice, took Eric, and then, you know, Aaron's sitting there for us. And it's like, you know, thank God he was, you know, and, and he's been, he's just been great. And then 
the next, and then we, we backed it up. We thought, okay, now we're going to get the high school left-hander. And it was Ian Clark in, and, and Ian got hurt and had issues with uh, just being able to stay healthy. So, you know, it, it really is the difference between one pick and one guy's the MVP and the next guy, poor guy can't stay healthy and he's out of, and he's, you know, basically out of baseball. So it's, it's wild how that works. You know, Damon, when we think about baseball players, we think about guys who get better and better. I, I don't know why we don't think about it in people in like your job, right? Like you're probably a better scouting director today than you were at a certain other time. I'm wondering if you could, you know, like, again, you are, it's not exactly throwing a dart at a dartboard, but you don't get the opportunity to take the best players. And sometimes you probably take gambles like an Andrew Brackman, right? Like you're hoping there's a certain amount of ceiling there, et cetera. There's been very big successes. Do you have uh, like something you've learned along the way? Because I think if we look at your last, especially four or five drafts, uh, there's a lot of major league players in there already uh, with uh, good, uh, as you mentioned, many have been used in trades already uh, and are in the major league. What have you learned along the way to kind of like take out some of the gamble when it's always a gamble business? Well, I think that the, a lot of credit goes to the staff that, that we've we've put together. I mean, and we've lost some guys recently. Like I mentioned, Brian Barber, you know, becomes he becomes a scouting director. But we've got, you know, good guys working for us. And we've got and we've incorporated, you know, analytics and we've incorporated uh, sports science and we've incorporated a lot of mental conditioning. So so we've increased everything that goes into what we think makes a player. And, and I think that we've, we've become a lot better at just putting the whole puzzle together. Uh, you know, we took Scott Lovecamp, who's my pitching guy and made him just, and we, and on all he focuses on is pitching. So we've, so we've kind of narrowed the field down on what some of the guys are actually scouting and that they're not all scouting everything. And I think that that's been a big, a big help for us. And, you know, our, our analyst, Scott Benneke, he does a great job of making sure that everybody, he can deliver the message on what's important when it comes to statistical things that, that the scouts can use and understand. But he also understands what the scouts eye sees and that their gut. So I think that it's, I think that we're just getting overall, you know, I've been doing this a long time and finally think like hey, getting pretty pretty to where we're getting pretty good at this we're getting better you know and year in and year out we're just getting better at it you know i want you to tell me that mike trout story i know in that 2009 draft um you know i know he was high up on your board uh you'd like to get all the players from the new york area you can you obviously got volpe from Wachung trout uh from down by the philly area but still new jersey um did you think you had a shot to get trout what did you like about him and then you know uh, do you kind of root for him anyway? Because I, I think he was, I think you had him way up on your board and, or do you just feel, wow, we just barely missed out on one there. Um, I think you ended up drafting Slade Heathcott, uh, because, you know, obviously Trout was gone at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, that one was like, uh, gut-wrenching because we, you know, we, we really thought that there were a lot of teams that just, you know, weren't that on Mike Trout, you know, the fact that it was Southern New Jersey and that he was hard to see. And um, it was like, so we thought, you know, Hey, we got a really good shot and we loved him. I mean, it was like every, every, we got, we were fortunate because everybody at the time we'd go see him, 
he was really good, and that helps. I mean, when you go see a guy and he and he hits missiles all over the park and he runs four flat down the line and he plays good center field, it's it's pretty helpful when you're doing your evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we we did that, and and so you know, I'm thinking, gosh, we got a really good shot because there's just not you know not a lot of people that are just seem like they're into this this kind of player and not the player, but the area he's from and all that. But damn, it's like Eddie Bain sitting there with the, and he's the scouting director of the angels and he just, and, and and he knows what he's looking at. And and he, he uh, pops him after he took, he had two picks. So he takes, uh, he takes, um, well, who was it? The guy. Yeah. Yeah. Randall Gritchick. Yeah. He takes Randall Gritchick first and i'm thinking okay you know he's not going to take another another like high school maybe outfielder back to back and then right and then, and then he takes him and you're like oh man you got to regroup now and your heart just kind of sinks and you think man we really had a shot at it that's such an impactful guy so yeah it's yeah and that changes history doesn't it if that guy's if that guy's there <laughs> yeah. one more one more pick uh so I want to ask you to wrap up two technical questions, but I do want to throw a bouquet here. I noticed something. There are 10 players left from the 2006 draft still playing in the major leagues this year. And three were drafted by Damon Oppenheimer, Ian Kennedy, Mark Melanson, and David Robertson, three of the 10 still playing. And I would argue you have a case, especially considering where you draft the greatest pitching draft in history, because it's those three plus Jabba Chamberlain, Dylan Batanzas, George Cantos, Zach McAllister, and Daniel McCutcheon all at least pitched 100 games in the major leagues. Some of them like Batanzas, multi-time all-star, David Robinson, et cetera. I wanted to throw that out there just uh, because you're nice enough to join us. It's such a special draft. And I just want to ask two technical questions. And one could be almost like the Trout one. Would you, if you were the, the czar of baseball, allow draft picks to be traded where maybe you could have moved up and gotten – Trout, and what do you think about the draft being in July now? Does that help or hurt instead of where it used to be? Yeah, so thanks on the 2006 draft. So those guys, that, that was that was fun. That those guys have been, and, and I've stayed in touch with Kennedy and Melanson, and, and it's been and Dellen and all those guys. It's been it's been great. So um, Kennedy has to keep pitching because he's got so many kids he has to put through college. <laughs> so we joke about, we joke about that one. USC guy uh, like you, right? Yeah. 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 USC guy. In fact, I just joked with him. I said, like, Hey, when you do retire, you remember you still have the uh, college scholarship plan in your, in your, in your <laughs> original contract that you get, that you can use to finish off. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the uh, the, when it comes to the draft itself, I, I would, I'd, I'd be in favor of being able to to trade picks. I think it, I think it would, it would make for excitement. I think it in every other sport, even from hockey to football to maybe not as, I don't know about that much about basketball, but the trading of picks is, is it's exciting. It also creates a, a level to now you, now you have to figure out value, you know, and people, so your analytics department would probably be deep into the value of a pick compared to, you know, a, a, maybe trading it for a double a prospect or something like that. So I, I really do think that it would, it would create a whole nother excitement level to, to baseball. Um, and then, and then when it comes to the movement of the time of the draft, uh, you're probably talking to one of the guys that's, one of the few guys that's actually in favor of it. I, I thought it was good. I think that the most important draft 
that you can have is the is your current draft. And the more time you have to evaluate guys, the better chance you have, I think, to be accurate. And so now with the draft being when it is, you get kids that are going to go to Cape Cod and, and play uh, a little bit more. You get more visual. You get more uh, you get more data, you get more wood bat at more wood bat at bats. And then, you know, you also get high school guys that the it was, you know, typically the northern kid, the, the cold weather kid, he, he was gonna be seen with a, in about three games. So nowadays you're able to, you know, lengthen this out and and probably do a better job, I would think, on on the current year's draft. I, I think that maybe it affects you, you if you have the right staff. You send your staff to the Cape Cod League to see the the follows. You t- you send them to to some of the high school events to see the follows for the next year, and and you keep bearing down on the guys that you're going to draft for this year. Damon, uh, we do appreciate it. We know how busy you are. Your call. Uh, th- this is being done from a hotel room uh, in uh, the New York area. We won't give away the to the other teams to which New York area you're in. Uh, and how many days you spend on the road a year. And uh, John and I, again, we appreciate, we know you're a long time and we appreciate you joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Damon. Thanks guys. John, we're closing where we usually close. What do you got? Hit or error? Well, I'm going to go error this week. I've been pretty positive lately. Of course, fresh in my mind is that Mets game where they had four pitch clock violations and, you know, they had reasons for all of them, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, I get it. We're only five games into the season, but uh, to have a pitch clock violation on the very first pitch of the game to start the game one and oh, that's a little odd. I think Buck Showalter, who's really fixated on this as well as everything (laughs) else to do with baseball, uh, will be probably didn't sleep last night and it's going to go over and all and talk to all of the offenders from last night's game. And hopefully we won't see a game. And it's not the reason the Mets lost 10, nothing, but certainly didn't look good. You think Buck is fixated. He's like fixated, wrapped and obsessed, uh, followed <laughs> by driving everybody nuts about this. So uh, yeah, I, I, I assume uh, that he'll be on top of it. John, my, mine, uh, I'm going to have a hit this week. Uh, the Rays have broken out 4-0, and and I wonder if we're seeing the big breakout season from Juan DeFranco, who opened the season 8-15, for four extra base hits, two stolen bases, and two tries. Jeez, he only turned 22 earlier uh, in, on March 1st. Uh, the Rays are always a strong run prevention team. They're always good pitching. Shane McClanahan. We've seen Jeffrey Springs has jumped up and looks like he's going to be a good pitcher. They still have Tyler Glasnow coming, but if Franco is going to be a star, they're going to they're going to be a real beast for the Yankees and the Blue Jays and everyone to deal with in the East. Yeah, I think Franco is going to be a star. Of course, three out of the four games were against Detroit. Not nothing against Detroit, a lovely city, but you know, let's. Again, we always go by these paces, teams doing great, teams not doing great. And the Rays do surprise me every year. So I, I should give them more credit than I do. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, John, you and I fell in the trap last year of the Angels. And I noticed early on the Angels were one of the teams with the better run differentials. Then I realized their first three games were against the Triple A's. The Triple A's. Is I like it. Call them, New right? nickname. Yeah. So anyway, uh, thank you for listening uh, to the show, a podcast from the New York Post. Thank you to our producers, Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz. Don't forget, the show drops on the Yes app by noon Wednesday every week. 
Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please give us a five-star rating. And we're just one week in to this 162 one-game seasons, and you stick with us all year on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. We hope it's a great ride.